Howdy gang, thank you for tuning in to Back Country and Barbells. Today's episode is brought to you by PR Lifting. Guys, check out PR Lifting. PR Lifting is nestled right here in the Pacific Northwest, and their goal is to be your neighborhood provider for the top-line fitness equipment, guys. Quality fitness gear from PR Lifting. I have a bunch of their stuff in my garage, especially the kettlebells I swing. Uh, Jeremy, he has a big old sandbag from them. A lot of versatile gear, a lot of gear that will last, and guys, excellent customer service. So check those guys out. Um, PRlifting.com. Let them know that Backcountry and Barbells sent you. PR Lifting also does a great job, or they did this past year, of supporting the send Foundation, the big ticket item, the big ticket partner, the folks we really want you to look into. So guys, check out sendavet.org, send-a-vet.org. Um, over $100,000 raised at our recent auction, their recent auction, excuse me. I was part of it. I haggled PR lifting to send some gear and uh, also ran around selling a bunch of um, necklaces to play the uh, heads or tails game, which was fun. So personally, I was part of raising, um, I think, close to $3,000 um, for it. Really proud of that number. Really proud to be a part of this association. So check them out, guys. Go to their website. Click the Donate Now button or contact button whether you have a vet that needs some help, whether you want to help or you just got some money that... Uh, for tax purposes, you need to get rid of and unload. Um, do it, guys. They're sending troops all over the world. Yep, there was a uh, safari hunt, uh, African safari hunt that was auctioned off, along with um, the big ticket item here in the Pacific Northwest is actually a bear hunt that they're all gearing up for right now. So send them out. Send a vet. Um, check them out. Be happy if also you let them know that the guys at Backcountry and Barbells sent you. And also, guys, please, while you're at it, checking out our show sponsors and the folks we're trying to raise awareness for. It'd be really cool. If you went to our website, backcountryandbarbells.com, we have a cool training program, Base Camp, that's free of charge. Check that out, guys. Um, Base Camp is a place to start your home strengthening and conditioning journey with some structured strength building, um, some capacity-driven Uh, finishers in those workouts and uh, from there we'll have some other options but uh, check it out and also guys um, you know we you can find out more about our partners and and our latest releases Um, in particular last week's episode episode 13 that featured uh, the bugler Dirk Durham himself guys giving you some um, information on how he started hunting and um, what he thinks you need to get geared in for regarding calling elk Um, he's got a lot of great stuff so check that out guys um be awesome please do that and, and while you're at it review the show let folks know what you're thinking share it with your your hunting partners in particular if you do take that extra step to review the show make sure you do it on itunes um and if we're not where you listen to podcasts or you go to turn it on to a buddy and your hunting buddy says ah, it's not on this app that i listen to um we need to know that so let us know and we'll get it going thanks a bunch today's episode guys uh jeremy and i take a stab at sorting out um, Washington's decision uh, to to include uh, Hunter's Pink uh, in in the field, which we think in terms of inclusiveness is awesome. But then also we get into this whole interesting conversation about eyesight and training that up. So check it out. Give us a listen. And remember, folks, train, hunt, and live. Thank you very much. Well, howdy, guys. You have found the Backcountry and Barbells podcast. Jeremy, what's going on, man? 
Oh, nothing much, brother. Just another beautiful morning here in America. <laughs> it's a beautiful morning here in America. Um, it is, and it's getting particularly beautiful here um, in Western Washington. Um, this is, I, I tell people a lot about, you know, I live out here now, and they're like, man, you got to deal with the rain. I was like, you know, you get a rain jacket, and you deal with it pretty easily, and you can spend so much time outside. But I would say now it's in particularly great because you got those crisp mornings, and then you got those warm afternoons, with the, you know, where it's not, it's got that nice cool breeze, but that warm sunshine in the afternoon. It's just, it's just a beautiful time to be, to be in Washington, I think, right now. Oh, I, I absolutely agree. And, and our weather is always mild here anyway. So in the summer, we rarely get above 80. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, your handful of days that are, but usually we're in the 70s, you know, mid to high 70s. And that to me, perfect weather. I've lived in areas where it's been, you know, 104, 105 in the summer. Listen, talk about armpits. Um, I've, listen, Columbia, South Carolina. That is in like a gully, and it is a humid, wretched place in the summer. And I, that's what I talk about. There's no way I would live in the southeast after living here in Hawaii and some other places. It's just that humidity. And even in the northeast, I can get you. And, and that, that's that humidity that we don't seem to hit up here. But, um, you know. You know what, Joe? I used to live in Columbia, South Carolina myself. Okay. What would you think? Am, so, I, am I off? Huh? Am I off? You are not off. <laughs> okay. I, I swore to I swore to myself and everybody else I would never go back to the East Coast, but now my corporate headquarters is in North Carolina. Okay, absolutely love it. So, well, I take it back. No, well, but I don't think I could live in the South. Well, here's the here here might be the reason for that. And me and Eliza, we lived in Hawaii before living in Colombia, and oh. when we moved to Colombia, we were just like, man, the people in Hawaii were really nice. <laughs> and we were we couldn't we we couldn't wrap our head around what was going on in Colombia. Like, you know, you go to a service desk and someone looks at you like you're bothering them. Uh, you just couldn't get good service anywhere. And then we drove up to Charlotte, about forty five minutes north. Um, saw some friends, and all of a sudden we were like, "Oh, it's Colombia." I mean, it's just the... the <laughs> yeah, there's something about that the, town. Yeah. There are a lot of angry people. Well, and they're still mad that Sherman burned it down. Um, <laughs> there there could be some... you know, And then that could be a real residual thing, you know? They're, they're, they're just... Yeah, it's an interesting place. And um, I would say there is an anomaly to, to Columbia that, that should give it some benefit where, you know, it, the cost of living is is, is very affordable and... It's like two hours within some awesome places. Like I said, you can drive to Charlotte. You can drive to Atlanta. You can drive to Asheville. Um, you can get to uh, Charleston. I mean, you can go to all these wonderful places. But, man, there's just a there's a strange demeanor in Columbia. Um, and and I, hope, I, I hope they would remedy it. I know it used to be a pretty beautiful city. I think it... Um, but yeah, it got, it got torched up. If, if, if you go through, um, were you in Savannah at all when you were in Columbia? No, I only lived there for about two months while, uh, Michelle was in, um, AIT for the military. Yeah. Well, supposedly Savannah, um, is a pretty, is a pretty good reflection of what all those Southern, um, cities used to be like before, um, at, you know, post-Civil War, you know, they had to go through that rebuild, but, you know, Savannah's beautiful and supposedly, um, Columbia was just as, but you know, 
it's it's hard to tell people to get over things um but you know collectively <laughs> collectively as a group i mean i think there's some really cool aspects of columbia that kind of get overshine overshone by just really bad attitudes and i don't know how else to say that but uh, maybe i'm wrong maybe i'm missing something um but um you know if you've been through that area uh, let us know your thoughts on that i just in our travels you know you know it, it it's it's funny it's funny what you notice um, and, and I'll say that there is a vast difference when you cross that border between North and South Carolina and, um, I'm working on putting my finger on it. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but I'm, I'm always putting my finger on something, Jeremy, um, <laughs> which is interesting. And another thing I've noticed about travels and, and you tell me this, I know everywhere I go, people say that their area does get the worst weather, by the way. Have you noticed, oh, yeah, have, they do. have you noticed that anomaly? The one I always hear is, um, if you don't like the weather here, in five minutes, it'll change. Yeah, that's right. People say <laughs> I've heard that from... Everywhere I go, man. <laughs> that's right. Except for Arizona and New Mexico. That's the only two states, and probably California. Well, yeah, and San Diego, right? It's nice, right? Yeah. Lewis Black oh, yeah. had a famously funny stand-up segment that said something like, the easiest job in the world is weather reporter in San Diego. <laughs> <laughs> he looks at the looks at the map and says it'll be nice, right? So it's gonna be nice today. It's very be cool. Beautiful. Well, there's a little uh, little shit shooting uh, session there in the beginning, but we do have some <laughs> we do have some real content to get to you guys. And um, I think uh, I think a neat segue, Jeremy, into what we want to talk about is some some uh, some legislation that's passed in our neck of the woods, and yeah. it's, it's legislation that's been passed in a couple other states where they're starting to get. Um, or they're just starting to add new colors to what hunters can wear in designated areas where where safety, you know, generally you see this in modern um, firearm areas and, and times where you're hunting where, you know, they want people in uh, the hunter or fluorescent orange. And um, recently here in Washington, as they've done, as mentioned, in a couple other states, um, they've added pink, um, fluorescent pink to that list of appropriate gear to keep you safe in the woods and i just thought it was an interesting thing to bring up because we're going to talk a little bit about eyesight and, and different aspects of that today um you know we're looking at a lot of things in the woods um you've been hunting for a while you teach hunter safety i know they give out a little orange vest uh to folks who who get that done um are you excited to be handing out uh, a pink vest sir you know um i don't know if i'm excited joe but yeah. it it's 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 a new color. It's going to be changed, and people are kind of going to be weirded out about it, and kind of have kind of maybe a frustration and thinking that we're catering towards women or what have you. But yep. I think it's good to have a little bit of diversity. I mean, you're going to be able to see it. That's for dang sure. <laughs> that's so, right. It's not going to be an issue of sight, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um. No, I hear you. So I think I think in the same sense we're you're kind of like, you know, what's the big deal? I'm almost on the other side of the fence going, what's the big deal? In the sense, well, why change something that works? Because for me, like, it, it, I, 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 my first thought was, well, hunter safety orange is a pretty inclusive color, and it's done its job. You know, I just wonder the fact that, you know, even in the article that I read, they cited statistics that since, since the orange has been implemented – um, and forced to wear that, you know, um, accident numbers have dropped in the woods. And I'm just wondering, like, okay, you have a good thing that 
that is very gender neutral, why switch it in general? So um, that was my initial reaction. And then the, the other reaction I had was, I'm like, I couldn't get past the fact that everyone's slapping themselves on the back about, you know, making this an inclusive thing. But I'm like, I don't think that's why they did it. In, in the back of my mind, I'm like, this is probably a revenue driver somewhere for a government, you know, and, and that's just me um, being uh, being skeptical of people who, who run the show without without being a part of the show, I guess. Yeah, well, it, you know, and there's statements made that the women hunting, the women hunters are on the rise more so than the men in America. So, you know, you kind of cater to both sides. I mean, yeah. pink is kind of a, you know, guys get all weird and, oh, I'm not going to like pink or whatever. But, you know, girls like it. They're going to throw it on there. It might entice and, and, and just give a little bit of fun to um, having to wear Hunter's Orange. Nobody likes to wear it. I mean, you, <laughs> you right. put it on, you're like, damn it, i got to put this on. Every animal and every person in the world is going to see me. That's right. And it's going to be the same thing with pink. And at the end of the day, the goal really is to save lives. I mean, that's the idea behind it because so many accidents have occurred in the past um, with even the old kind of hunter's orange that would fade over time and now that it can't fade to a certain color and then you got to get rid of it mm. um so people would just shoot into bushes that are moving because they can't really see the hunter's orange or sometimes it would look like an elk's butt or whatever but with this pink you are going to be able to see it from the next county I yeah guarantee that, it yeah that's right <laughs> and, and I, it's highly visible i think that that's a that's a um that's no doubt, and I think it's I think it's good. And then the, the other thing I wonder sometimes too is, you know, they're not really they're not they're not so far from each other anyway, right? And you know, I think maybe you can get in this idea. And I think of my kids sometimes, and I'm like, okay, if the choice of ice cream at dinner is just vanilla, no one fights. But if we break out a couple different ones, people have a hard time making a decision. I'm just <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I'm just hoping that like. You know, in a in a situation where split seconds matter, you'd hate that whether, you know, indecision is caused by anything. You know, I just wonder if one is good enough when it comes to safety. But like you're saying, you know, it's it's just a it's a it's an interesting it's an interesting thing to do. Um, I'm definitely for bringing more folks into the fold. And like you mentioned, the the, the biggest demographic in the hunting community, at least in terms of rising um, or an increase is women. And I, th I think it's super cool. Um, and I guess at the end of the day, if you do the math and if, if more people are getting in the woods and more people are, um, more people are excited, then, um, can it hurt? I would just hope that along with introducing the new color, they would try to track the safety statistics and and even if it means hurting people's feelings at the end of the day, or if it doesn't matter at the end of the day, um, I hope that, they're going to continue to track the numbers. It just makes sure that it's keeping people safe, like you said. Yeah, and I think they're going to keep a very close watch on it because, like you said, it's um, it's 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 something new, and um, they're they're going to just really want to know what's going on out there as far as hunters, what they see, how they perceive it. Is it you know, is it actually working? That's right, but. It, it, it's going to be very interesting. Yeah, maybe. Or maybe not. You know, because... <laughs> and it might not be, right? Like, I remember even... And it's so funny you bring up this thought that people 
get worked up over change because they really do. I mean, at my school district, we started the school year where the kids were using their lockers, but then the the administration did a, a quick research on they did an analysis. Lots of kids were late because they were late to their lockers. They noticed that lots of fights were happening at their lockers. And a couple kids had actually made requests that, why don't we just use our backpacks all the time? And they made that change mid-school year. And you, the, from a teacher standpoint, there was an uproar. Oh, they're going to be packing weapons in their backpack. They're going to be <laughs> distracted this. Our classrooms are big enough to house their stuff. I mean... Everybody started throwing up every worst case scenario. And then when they implemented this change, um, nothing happened. (laughs) You know what I mean? Everything carried on as usual. And in fact, everything that they thought good would happen happened. And kids were on time um, more. There were less fights in the hallways. And and it was a good thing. So, you know, change is tough. And even if it's a goofy thing, and and I think we've talked about before on this podcast that, you know, there is a bit of um, there's a bit of an old guard in the hunting community. And I'd imagine whether it's introducing a new, you know, you see this with crossbows, right? It, is that, yeah. is that a fair thing to take, you know, do, crossbows versus atlatls and this and that, what should you use? What are the seasons and, you know, conventional versus fly stuff. I mean, people get into their little places, but, uh, you know, I think it's best to just wait and see. And, um, man, if it gets more people in the woods, why not? Right. Well, and that's the deal. I mean, the decline of hunters is huge right now. I think the state of Washington, we only have, um, I think it's 5% of the population is our hunters, which is pretty low, in my opinion. Well, I'm you, glad it is, but... <laughs> in, well, that's right. Isn't that, isn't that an interesting thing where you're like, yeah, I want less guys in my spot, but you want more people, you want exactly. more people in it because like we've talked about before with... Um, with the legislation that was passed recently where um, the the bill that went, the bill that all of a sudden turned into an act where, where our public lands are defended, you know, that doesn't happen without very active and a large body of um, advocates for it. So you're always caught in there, you know. So I think that that's, again, uh, a very interesting thing. So when you teach hunter safety, Jeremy, do they – do, do they share with you statistics about um, how many people have taken it, new people coming in and new people, who, or at least from a from a license standpoint, who who's getting into the state? No, because there's so many. Um, it's all volunteer, right? So okay. um, unless somebody does their research or has talked to um, somebody that wor- works for WDFW, then we usually don't know. And we're usually a, the same group of guys that always teach, so the particular class at the particular place. But sometimes, you know, somebody will come up with a new statistic like that 5%. I just heard it. Um, I think it was the last, um, <clears throat> hunter's ed class that we taught a couple weeks there last month. Cool. Yeah. I'd like to, I'd like to, you know, just a quick Google search, fewer hunters stress Washington's already tight wildlife budget. So I'd like to, I'd like to, um, probably look into this a little bit more and see but hey you know we need all the help we can get i know i know from my perspective um teaching in a public school here in washington i'm interested in how many kids don't hunt i there's two the reaction i get when i bring it up because you know um i think a great way to achieve fitness is to just sneak in what you can when you can and that might be five push-ups here ten there in the Uh same in the same way i do the same thing where i'm learning how to call elk 
So I keep a, you know, uh, Jason Phelps, we, we talked with him um, and he gave us some calls and I keep one in my car and I'll walk around with it in school and everyone's like, well, what the heck is that? And I'll get to talking about them. You know, this is an elk call and I'll practice it in school and they're like, well, what are you going to do with that elk call? And I'm very blatant. I'm like, well, I'm going to trick an elk to get near me and then I'm going to put an arrow through its lungs and heart and then... <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm going to butcher it in the woods and eat it. And they just look at me with this face like they've never heard of hunting. Like, I think at least amongst middle schoolers, it's a there's few and far between kids who are interested in the sport. And, um, you know, I think they're I don't see hunting being marketed to kids as a very positive thing, at least in my, in my at least from my standpoint, there's there's much more anti hunting um stuff out there in terms of like what you see on Disney movies and um, different ways hunters are characterized in like this traditional Elmer Fudd scenario to kids than there are, you know, guys like myself, um, yourself, or or a, a Jason Phelps slash Steve Rinella guy being presented to kids that hunting isn't just, you know, for, for gun-happy rednecks. Like it's, it's, it's a great recreational sport that the whole family can enjoy. And I, I think we yeah. probably, if, if Hunter Pink gets a couple little girls into it from a young standpoint, then you know what, to be honest with you, I'm all for it. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So, because you know, that, that's the problem. And, and you know, we live in a very liberal area too. So, um, every time I'm out working or something, I have to be careful of what I say. Cause people get so <laughs> offended. They're like, you, I can't believe you would actually kill an animal. And I'm like, just like anybody would say, I was like, well, do you eat meat? I mean, yeah. the only difference is I harvest my own and you don't. But at the end of the day, we're still eating all the same things. Yeah. So, so I, the response should be, and what mine is to people who ask me that question, I'm like, okay, so you eat meat. And so, okay, so you stand for, you stand for the imprisonment, torture and processing of innocent creatures i mean what's worse at least i go out in the woods and, and do the hard work and, and pay respect to the animal you know what i mean so i think there's a couple yeah. of different coins to that so interesting stuff um what do you guys think uh pink orange doesn't matter um there is an instagram post on my feed a ways back maybe maybe we'll repost it on the backcountry and barbells feed and, and just get that conversation going again don't want to date this release too bad um, but so just be on the lookout for that and, and we'll get it going. Um, but it, it does lead us into what Jeremy kind of said, like you see it, you know, debating aside and subjective analysis and opinions and feelings aside, um, you can't argue that you can't see fluorescent pink or fluorescent orange. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it is out there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, when, when the NFL does their uh, breast cancer month, right? I mean, you see them pink shoes from across the room and the field. I don't care what stadium you're in. You see them towels flying. Um, so we want to get into eyesight and, and what's important about it. Um, I've always, Jeremy, I'll start with the question. I've always wondered, like, how much of the time is spent looking at lots of things versus how much time is spent looking at very tiny things in the woods. Um, and I was kind of thinking about this, um, after hunting, um, after elk camp again, working with Chad, because there were moments where our noses are in the dirt and we're looking for a single leaf turned over to keep a track going. Um, and then there were times where we were sitting on a knob and we're trying to pick out a needle in a haystack amongst a, 
you know, a vast landscape, you know, with binoculars and just general eyesight. So uh, as a new guy coming in, I mean, or anybody coming in, I mean, how do you prioritize eyesight um, uh, from a from a hunter's perspective? Well, I it's a super important. I think the reason why guys are less successful or the less successful ones are less successful is because they don't train their eye to see movement, to see antlers, to see whatever. They're always maybe always looking at a computer or a device. You're looking at a specific one thing on there. You're not looking at multiple, like a big massed area. Um, so, I, you know, I think the eyesight is super important that you have to train it. And you got to train it in a way of not looking at screens as much and to look far away focus on like me at my house I have the, I'm fortunate I can look out quite a ways and I'll just watch the trees blow and I'll just zero in and I'll look at the branch and I'll look at the leaves and I'll just look at every little intricate part about it and then that's strengthening your eye as you're looking at it at, at a far distance and then I'll shift it to something close and then you just kind of got to go back and forth with that and then I'll look and see if I see movement I try to see if it's brown or you know, it could be a squirrel or a bird, and I try to identify it as quick as I can. Because once you get down in the woods, that's what you're going to be looking for. Yeah, and you have to make decisions, right? I think, you, you know, going going back to our, even our initial conversation about Hunter Orange versus Hunter Pink, you know, it's not, it's not the pink's fault. It's not the orange's fault that accidents happen in the woods. Well, generally, why accidents happen in the woods is a guy gets worked up and sees something, it doesn't identify it before taking a shot, right? So, yeah. so by training your eyesight and and actually, as you teach in the hunter safety course, you have to identify not only your target but what's behind your target before you shoot. If you do that, um, you're not gonna you're not gonna have accidents, right? So, whatever you're doing to kind of train your eyesight, um, you have to keep that a consistent practice. So, the the big thing to probably not do and what you should um, the low-hanging fruit, like you mentioned, in terms of eyesight ability, um, is probably dropping that screen a bit. I mean, and this goes back to what our parents were telling us. Don't sit so close to the TV screen. Exactly. Well, it's funny that that, I mean, that was the way I grew up, hearing that all the time. But now, nobody, I can't get through, I probably can't get through a 20-minute period in my life without seeing somebody holding a screen four inches from their face. And I think that that's a major, major problem. Um, the the blue light that comes from the phone and these LCD screens, I just can't think that it doesn't have an impact on our eyesight. And I know that there can be conflicting reports from, from different news sources about just how much. And, you know, the sun emits more blue light than, than our phones emit. But, um, there's a there's a scientist that I talked to um, from Cal Berkeley. His name's Andy Galpin, and Andy Andy's got a great podcast. Um, he's been on uh, Joe Rogan's podcast, and he's done some stuff with the Barbell Shrug podcast. And he's a really cool young exercise physiologist. And um, in my conversation with him, he he said, "You know what you should do? Run this experiment. Get into a very black room, dark room. Turn your phone on." And put the screen way up. And when you do that, you've got this like laser amount of light. And you can, it's very apparent 
what that light's doing. And then realize that that light is still being emitted from your phone even when it's daytime and you can't see it. And where do you think it's going? I mean, it's going in your eyes. And, and, and in, my, in my point of view, in my perspective, I think anything that we're doing that is um, alternative to what got us here in an ancestral health model sense is probably not a good thing. And over the course of our thousands of years of, of um, evolution that kind of put us in the place we are now, I didn't see us like lasering blue light into our retinas <laughs> for 12 hour periods. You know no. what I mean? Even 20 minute periods. I mean, we limit that we limit the tablet use on our, our kid um, to 20 minute chunks. And, you know, some days it's more, some days it's less. Um, we will give them a little bit of a free run on the weekend. You know, we mount the TV pretty high so you can't stand in front of it. And it's something we're super conscious of. And um, in this sense, I just don't think it could be a good thing. But time will tell because, again, this technology is pretty new. Yeah, and it, it's already apparent. I mean, you just look at how the society is. Your eyesight controls so much of how your your attitude, right? If you're if you're staring at a screen all the time and then you come off of that screen and then you go into another chaotic environment that's now you know focusing in on your ears, yeah. you're you're really edgy. And and you see that in society anymore that people are just getting more and more edgy <laughs> and it's cuz they're staring at these screens. I mean, you're you're taxing out your eyes. Those screens are a foot from your face, and you're zeroed in on what's the very front part of that 3D, right? You're not focusing on what's on the background or the backdrop. So you're sitting there constantly looking at that. And then when you look up at everything else, and then now you have this you know, true 3D, and you have to really zone your eyes in over here and over there, it, it causes – it affects how you're – going to mentally go out throughout your day no i believe it um i i I would think so like i said i think the the real research time will tell on this but um uh, for an interesting like perspective on all this stuff there's a really cool book that that i have that affected me quite a bit and it's um it's a book by a guy named phil white andy galpin who i just mentioned and brian mckenzie who's who's another strength coach but it's called unplugged and it's about how um in the health and fitness world, we're moving more and more towards these gadgets to measure things. But in this book, they're like, hey, you know, the gadgets are cool and they should be used a little bit, but you really need to tune into yourself for some to, to be able to really uh, to sort out effort levels, diagnostics, how your body's feeling, and, and they give you some ways to do that. So check that out. Uh, maybe we'll put a link to it in the show notes. But Unplugged, I think it's a, I think it's a really neat book. Um, and I think it just presents an alternative view to what some of these gadgets are doing to us, including the cell phone and things like Fitbits. And, um, you know, I just, I, I, I can't go back. I think time will tell, right? And I just, I can't, I can't help but have some intuition that says, man, if we weren't doing it, if it didn't get us here, it can't be helpful to keep us here. And um, that's just where I sit with it. But so, Jeremy, in terms of like hunting, I mean, another cool aspect of this is just, you know, you know, glassing, picking up animals. Um, we, we also need to use some devices to pick these things up. And I know that the first time I looked into like a, a rifle scope, I was 
amazed at how difficult it was. <laughs> yeah. I know there's lots of different <laughs> things there, but, you know, it's not easy. Just because you put on binoculars or get on a, a get on a glass and tit and, and have a um, spot and scope doesn't mean you're going to see animals. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a challenge. It is a challenge, and that challenge really is the patience part of the whole mm. using binoculars or a scope, right? Because we want to look up and see something right away, but you have to really uh, – what's the word I'm going to use here? You, you really have to focus slowly and scan the ground very slowly looking for every little bit of movement, discoloration, um, you know, the – outline of an elk or a deer or their back or you know whatever so when you look through a set of binoculars now you're tunnel visioned and you're not used to that tunnel vision so you really have to concentrate on just looking through the binoculars look straight and use your eyes to scan everything for a little bit move over and everybody has a different way of doing it but my challenge to everybody when you're first starting to hunt and using binoculars just go slow with it. Don't try to scan super quick because you're going to miss something. I mean, my um, two years ago or last year, I went on a backpacking trip with my brother-in-laws. And um, my one brother-in-law, Lee, he had an elk tag. And we're up there. And those two are sitting there finding deer and elk all the time and bears and whatever. And Bighorn, I mean, we're in an area outside of um, in central Oregon that was got a lot of game. And I wasn't seeing anything because over in the Cascades, I, you don't really have to have binoculars. I don't use them that much, right? Because usually everything's within 100 yards. So I was having a hell of a time, and I realized, man, I'm just scanning way too quick. I'm not taking my time. And once I started taking my time, I started identifying a lot more animals. So my advice is get out there, get your binoculars, even if it's in your yard. Just zero in on something and try to find – you know, say you want to, I'm going to, I want to see three pieces of bark or whatever. You just look in, try to find your three pieces of bark and then move on. Yeah. So train the eyes be, to, to be patient. And then again, I mean, we can go back to social media and all sorts of things. And, you know, whether it's, you know, what was the thing when we were kids, like the MTV ruined, ruined detention spans because all of a sudden now kids are watching television in three minute blocks instead yeah. of instead of 30 minute blocks well now it's three seconds right it's a it's a phone swipe so um you know just just organizing organizing yourself to be patient you know i wonder if i wonder if just taking on uh, i this might be a little woo woo um for folks but um last summer um when my wife was gone i took on a meditation practice um to calm my ass down and, um, you know, I've since gotten off of it. It's just not something that took hold. But for that summer, I did feel a little bit better. I felt a little bit more patient. And I, I wonder if, uh, I wonder if some sort of meditative practice wouldn't be like a good for a hunter because, you know, you're inundated with all this information all the time. You know, think about driving in your car, you got the radio going, you know, you got your phone on your lap. Most of us do, you know, it's true. Um, and, and, you know, you're, you're trying to take in your surroundings, you're getting hammered by stimulus, and then your kids are in the back screaming at you, maybe they're fighting, you know, we've all been in that scenario. But then all of a sudden, when you're in the woods, and there's nothing, except you and binoculars in a landscape, it's probably really difficult to just turn that switch on to slow down. So I wonder if 
I wonder if just finding moments in your life to just be still also wouldn't make you a better hunter or a better glasser or to some degree just give you some patience to just get your life in order. Oh, I think it's really important to yeah. do that. I mean, you should always do some type of meditation and have that silence. I do it every morning for 30 minutes. Very cool. Do you have a... I just sit there and close my eyes, sip on my tea, and just, you know, <laughs> do some meditation things. Just think about whatever and kind of, you know. There's some... Um, I know there's some cool apps you can get into. And again, when you're talking about technology, you know, Headspace is an interesting one. There's a, um, there's a, uh, there's a gentleman named... Um, uh, Sam Harris, who's got a cool app, and there's different ones like like Ten Minute Happiness. There's different apps um, you can get into in books, obviously, to get it into that. But I, I wonder if it's just a smart thing to do for all of us, right? I mean, again, going back to ancestral health models, I'm sure, I'm sure, um, old school human had to sit alone by himself quite a bit and just contemplate all of the, <laughs> who the, the heck whole he was. winter. They didn't have freaking TVs. They didn't have light. Yeah. They didn't have, I mean, the whole winter long. Could you imagine that? Uh, just hanging out in a cave or whatever and just it's chilling un, with a little it's, fire. It's actually an unbelievable process to even contemplate that. <laughs> it's crazy. We are so spoiled. We are. You know, and another way to train the eyes, what I do is that um, Michelle and I, my wife, we we walk the dogs every night. And I do it in the dark. Because I like being able to just use the sun or the moon or the stars or whatever to light up my surroundings. And then it strengthens my eyes in um, the aspect that you really have to concentrate on seeing something. And there's a portion of our pathway. It's just like sometimes you get on there and we can't see anything. But you, you go in the dark, and but it, it is strengthening up your eyes. And when I'm out hunting usually at night when we're hiking out or whatever, if we're on a gravel road or what have you, I usually don't put a, turn on a light. Well, I wonder, that's a really interesting point that you bring up. Um, you know, when you have the phone in your face and you are inundated with unnatural light all the time, you know, whether it's a light in your bedroom or your closet or whatnot, your eyes never have to pick it up. But it's funny how when you are in the dark, we all fall been there. When the first lights go out, it's super dark, and then give it a few moments, and the eyes adjust, and they can pick up light. I wonder. I wonder if not only are we overexposing ourselves to weird light, and and for lack of lack of understandings, you know, me, I'll say something like burning out your retina. I don't know if that's happening or not, but it's just you know me working it out. But I wonder if we're also losing the ability to to pick up more light in in a tough scenario too. That's a, that's a super, that's a super interesting point. I don't think it needs to be a hard thing to do, but man, you know, I don't think anything in the human body adapts without a little bit of stress. Um, so again, maybe, maybe over blue light exposure in limited chunks is appropriate to help your body combat very bright situations and probably in chunks of training um, you should limit the light your eye gets so your eye can naturally learn how to adjust and pick that light up. And then in between, the exposure needs to be as natural and, and as close to the, the game day situation as possible. Well, yeah, and and you know the other thing it does is when you don't have any light and you're out there walking around, you're actually using your other senses. You're hearing, you're using, you have to, your feet, you got to really concentrate because if you walk off the pathway or into the mm. brush, you, you know, so you're working on all your senses 
And with me, it, it, it teaches me to be a little more light footed so that, cause when in your woods, you know, when you elk hunt, I'm never, I'm not really necessarily quiet. I mean, I'll cut tracks, but I will definitely walk a lot soft, softer trying to break less branches and make less noise under my feet. And by going in the dark, it helps train all of those other senses to actually kick in and do what they do naturally. So when you get out in the timber, you have that muscle memory and then it's a little, um, you're more apt to get up on game or a little closer. Yeah, that's right. Tune into your other stuff by turning one off. Right. So no, I think it's super interesting stuff. Um, I want to go to another point that you brought up when we were talking about glassing and, and you were had your experience with your, your brother-in-laws about how, you know, where you hunt also matters about how you should be kind of perceiving the training of your eyes. Um, you know, out here in Western Washington, we're in some thick stuff where, there's some instances where you're lucky if you can see 10 feet in front of your face. Are, are the needs for picking up like high dollar optics, is, is that something Is that something that's important for someone who's going to be hunting thick, heavy timber? I don't think you have to have a high, high dollar set of optics. I mean, they're definitely nice because of the clarity that you get. And then you get into some of these clear cuts and, you know, the, um, the down logs or the stumps or the butt ends of these logs can sometimes look like elk. So if you have mm. a good, nice pair of binoculars, you're going to be able to see it a little better. But I, I personally, I didn't even use binoculars for six years. I just two years ago bought a brand new pair and because I, I was going to start hunting more open country. And so I actually see more animals without using binoculars than I do with, with if they're within four to six hundred yards. Yeah, and I guess, and, and you said that takes practice. I remember El yeah. Camp this year, um, walking up with, walking up, um, and you know, Chad's like, "There's a bull," and I'm like, "Where? Where?" And he, uh, you know, right there on the side of that hill, you know, probably about four hundred yards away, um, and it was just doing its thing, and and it took him about eight minutes to say start at that tree go to that tree find this do that and he pointed it out to me but as soon as he as soon as i found the bull i was like oh snap there it is and then i couldn't stop seeing it and it just took that it took that recognition um of it to see how different it was for me to to find it and then to be honest after that finding other ones finding other ones was a, was a little easier seeing them. So, you know, just sometimes training your eye just takes experience. It does. And, you know, a lot of people watching videos anymore about elk hunting and this. And what I do is I try to find the movement, the antlers or whatever on the background before, you know, I try to think I'm going to find it before the hunter does. So the camera zeroes in and you just try to find those little types of movements and that helps train your eye and, and, kind of inadvertently, you know, gives you the silhouettes. It does all that stuff to help when you do get into a real live situation out in the timber that you're more apt to be able to see that kind of stuff. No, super cool. Um, the other place I think that where I'm finding that this eyesight conversation is, um, super important is even in like target acquisition, you know, whether you're doing it in Uh a scope or, or lining up your gear, from an archery standpoint, you know, to me, that's something that, um, is more of a challenge, uh, than I thought for, so in particular last year, I was just having a hard time 
dial in my peep in to um, to my site. And now this year, having learned a couple things and trying to develop a process, I'm actually considering going to a slightly smaller peep because I think the peep that I went to last year now, um, it's just giving me too much play and, it, and, it, and my, my groupings aren't as tight as I'd like. Uh, uh, for now, as we were talking about seeing things in a vast landscape, if we, we draw back to now seeing literally what's right in front of your nose in terms of lining your peep up with your sight and from an archery standpoint, or even, again, even lining up those scopes. Um, speak on your experience in, in, in that aspect of, of training an archer or, or, or a modern firearm guy to actually properly use that scope, because that takes practice too. Yeah, it does. So on the rifle, <clears throat> what I challenge people, when you go to a rifle range, a lot of guys will use, um, they'll have a, like a little seat to put their gun in so that they can shoot it down range and it's consistent and they're sighting it in. What I would say is take the gun out of that little seat or whatever and pull it up as fast as you can, shoulder that rifle and look down that scope and identify your target down at the end of the range. And just keep doing that until you are down to where you can pull it up comfortable and shoot within three seconds. Hmm. That's going to help you because what happens, like, and in, in you probably experienced when you pulled your rifle up and you shouldered it or whatever, and then you started looking in the scope, you're trying to get your eye relief, you're trying to get um, everything all lined up, and then you have to try to find the target. So you're sitting there thinking about all these different things you have to do from the point of grabbing the rifle, pulling it up, keeping your finger on the trigger, shouldering it, getting your eye down the line getting your relief correct, and then identify your target. There's a lot of things you have to do prior to identifying your target. So don't get into the rut of just leaving it right there or even you know, setting it on the side and then pulling it up and then trying to look at it. That doesn't work. You have to literally pull it up to your shoulder and identify everything because that's, that's real life action there. That's what's going to happen when you're out in the field. Well, and I, it's same thing, I think, with archery. Like, I think what what got me into a bigger peep last year was like not having a not having a not having a consistent process to get on my target. You know, I wasn't taking all the steps before I was acquiring my peep properly. Before acquiring my peep, I was just trying to aim and and kind of aiming on a on a bad base. I think was kind of giving me some some pretty nasty habits and. Yeah, even what I've picked up, you know, my my shot process now is over the last few weeks uh, has gotten pretty consistent, and, and I've referenced it before. I've been working through John Dudley's twelve week um, school of knock course, and it's pretty, it's pretty cool. I mean, it starts out with broad things like posture up, stance, but now, you know, I think it's uh, week seven or eight where it's actually discussing peep acquisition, and it's been super helpful for me because it's given me even a process to do that. So as I set my posture and get my head straight, you know, I'm not bringing my head to the peep. You know, I anchor first, and now with good posture, I can slightly adjust my head from even just like a 12 to 1 o'clock position to find it rather than doing all this wild head movement. And then the other thing, um, in terms of peep acquisition, I think it's been super helpful to me in this course is giving me a process for that. Rather than, I would always go pin first and then make sure that orbit was dialed in. Well, what um what John actually teaches, which has been unbelievable helpful to me, 
is going bubble, then going to the right, and then finding your pin. And then doing those three steps gets you dialed in, and it's given me a, a ton more confidence um, to, to to be dialed in. And even just that simple process alone of, you know, bubble, right, pin, bubble, right, pin, ha- has really gotten me super consistent in terms of um, acquiring my acquiring my target and getting that pin on the right spot. Well, yeah. And, you know, and he teaches, you know, there's what, like eight things you have to do kind of process as you go through before yep. you pull the, pull the release. Yep. And you know, you got to check your feet, secure your grip. You got to point your bow at the target, you know, not in the air or down on the ground. Um, you got to pull it back. Um, you know, shoulder position, draw your bow and finger off the trigger, and then anchor hand, you come into your P, let off safety, feel total comfortable, and then shoot. Yeah. There's nine things there before you do the 10th thing. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and so, and it's hard to do. And and then that's in a controlled environment. That's, that's at right. your, that's in at home. I mean, or, or at your range or wherever you're shooting. Same thing with the rifle. It's in a controlled situation. So when you get out in the field, and I think you seen last year when I was like, hey, how far do you think that stump is? And you're yeah, like, sir. I don't know, 20 yards. I go, okay, well, let's shoot at it. And you're like, what? Let me get yeah. my range finder. <laughs> yeah, and so <laughs> <Make> sure. <laughs> and, and, and we don't. I mean, we go through and we shoot at stumps, we shoot at rocks, we shoot at these things. You can't really do that with a rifle because it's not safe, but with a bow you can, and that helps you judge distance. But it, what it also does is get you to pull up and get a shot off accurately and see if you're actually going to be able to do it in the field. Yeah. And the same thing with a rifle. What I would do when I rifle hunted, I would be going along the road and I'd just pull my rifle up and I would put it on a tree stump. And just I'd focus on a tree stump and pull it up because it is really hard when you get out in the field and you're swinging around your rifle and you have to focus on one little dot 100 yards out. So you figure, okay, I'm going to – you pick a tree, you pick a stump, you pick, pick a leaf or something, and then you pull your rifle up and then you check it. Same thing with the bow. And all those things are going to help you be more effective when you get a live animal or something in front of you that you're, you know, you're targeting to hunt. Yeah. And, and even going through that process, like you mentioned, you know, these, these nine steps you have to roll through, um, you know, the, the, that school of knock course is interesting because each one you build on over the course of eight weeks, you don't just jump into that eighth one and he dumps all it's on you. But the, the thought is if you can collectively in this controlled environment, build on these steps then all of a sudden things that you were thinking of now just become habit. But like you said, what you have to do is then put yourself in this situation where are you dialing in the habits, right? Because you, you don't want to be, you don't want to be thinking like you know. Last year watching you hunt and, and the cow you put down, there was no, there was no. You did everything right. Obviously, we got the animal down. You hit a good shot, but you could tell that it was just, it was executed. It wasn't. It wasn't a thought process. And I think that that's that's where you need to go and. Um, I think at the end of the day, target acquisition, dialing in your eyesight needs to be something all hunters need to need to put at the end of their process. And, 
um, to, to kind of tie the conversation up with a little bow at the end, um, a fluorescent pink bow, by the way, that, <laughs> that we can all see, that we can all see from all corners of the woods. Don't give him any ideas, Joe. <laughs> That's right. But come on, man. Yeah. But, but the, but yeah, put that at the end of your process. You know, are you really seeing it and are you taking opportunities throughout the day to just dial in your natural eyesight? Because until they come up with like, you know, some kind of fancy lens or whatnot that you can be getting into, um, you're going to be reliant on your natural eyesight in order to pick out these critters. So, um, um, absolutely make that part of a process. So Jeremy, as we tie this thing up with our, um, after action review here, um, the, the conversation, the conversation was eyesight and, uh, pink and orange aside, um, to me, um, it's just monitor your device usage. Um, find ways to um, find ways to challenge your eyesight throughout the day in a natural setting. And then, lastly, just be conscious of some sort of target acquisition practice in your hunting training regiment. Um, so when you're out in the woods, it's it's instinctive. It's not, oh man, how do I find my peep? Exactly. The one thing, the only thing you want to be have to question is distance when you're out in the field. How far is that animal? That's the only thing you want to think about. That's out of all the animals I've shot with my bow. That's the only one thing that I can actually tell you that I thought about in that whole shot process. And at home, I go through my whole regiment of you know, check my feet, that whole list of 10. But when I'm in the field and I shoot at an animal, the only thing I ever think about is the distance. Everything else, I can't even tell you how I pulled up or anything like that. Well, then that's the thought, right? That's where, when you're training, that's when you're working with athletes, you want to then all of a sudden turn a new skill set into just instinctive happenstance. I mean, and, and that's what good coaching is. That's what good training is. And if you're doing both, um, man, you're setting yourself up to have, you know, tags notched and, and successful hunting stories and great memories, you know, so, um, get to it folks. Um, all things eyesight, if you appreciate the show, um, and you thought it was cool and you'd like to, um, you'd like to support it or you'd like to, um, give us a bunch of grief for getting something wrong. You should do that. And, um, you can interact with us through email backcountry and barbells, um, at gmail.com, um, find the website, you know, tell your hunting buddies, you know, you could even blog about this show and, um, um, you know, uh, just talk about it on your own format. If it's something that catches your interest. Um, the other thing, um, is just, uh, you could review it too. Um, anything you do to interact with us is going to help support the show. But, um, Jeremy, my friend, um, on the early goings in the early morning, um, the sun's coming up earlier and, uh, brother this was this was a good chat man yeah thank you i really enjoyed it cool well uh keep it up folks and um what are those three things that we want people to do jeremy on this show strengthen your eye oh no 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 the the three broad the three broad things the three broad things you want to train hunt live baby get it done guys take care Gang, hopefully that was a fun episode for you to listen to as much as it was for us to record, um, along with uh, figuring out what colors you need to be aware of in the woods. Hopefully a couple tips to get your eyes dialed in for the up-and-coming hunting season. Um, 
while you're looking at your phone, um, why don't you go on over to PRLifting.com, show sponsor, um, provider of great equipment, especially for those here in the Pacific Northwest. Also, guys, uh, sendavet.org, send-a-vet.org. Check them out. Support that organization. Send folks who need their help their way, our way, whoever. Um, we'll get you guys sorted out. And also, guys, please, if you enjoyed that show, uh, review it. Let your friends know that we're doing it. And um, go on over to our website, backcountrybarbells.com. Please download a copy of Base Camp, um, your at-home strength and conditioning starter program, guys. Um, get your horizontal vertical pushes in, um, picking stuff up, and then building some capacities over the long haul. Until the next one, guys, train, hunt, and live. Thank you very much.